The reason I was hired was to complete this caliber construction and get it to market quickly. So you could truly say it was a race against time. My name is Pierre Roulet, and I am from the Seigne Valley. I studied watchmaking engineering at the École Technique du Locle and the École d'Art Appliquée de la Chaux de Fonds before joining Zenith in 1966 for the end of the construction development work on the El Primero caliber and the start of production. The official launch of El Primero took place in January 1969 But the El Primero project had been launched many years earlier, with the initial aim of launching it to mark Zenith's centenary. The workshop was nevertheless faced with fairly limited resources and was thus unable to carry out the plan to produce this caliber within the planned time frame, meaning the process of getting things under way lasted through to 1968-1969. The construction had to be finished and the tools made. Production of the first movement blanks had to be launched before starting assembly and performing all the required tests. The latter phase was especially important, given that this caliber operated at a rate of 36,000 vibrations per hour and was thus able to measure hundredths of a second, the complementary characteristic of this El Primero caliber. The oscillator enabling this frequency had to be developed and then finalized by Zenith's team of chronometer specialists who were famed for their precision. Various controls ensured that all the chronograph functions were running normally, that the push pieces activating the functions were not too hard to handle, that they had a smooth feel, and that everything worked smoothly. This process involved not only the movement constructor, but also the prototype makers. It's amusing to remember that one of those involved used to repair bicycles for the people of the village every evening and assembled chronographs during the day. During the El Primero period, however, he performed all the friction and resistance tests so as to ensure the final product was an entirely usable product. With these elements in place, we were able to finalize the constructions, produce the first movement blanks, 
and announced the launch of the caliber in January 1969. When I arrived, one of the movement constructors was quite elderly, so there was something of a contrast between this experienced senior citizen and myself. As a young arrival, generally referred to in the factory as the kid. First a sketch, like an extension of a dream, in which nothing is left to chance. El Primero, the now legendary Zenith movement, this year celebrating its 50th anniversary, was eagerly awaited and even hoped for by the keenest lovers of precision. With its complex design requiring total commitment, Zenith placed an apparently crazy wager by devoting all its energy to this project. A carefully considered decision, which, as history was to prove, is still bearing fruit today. You're listening to El Primero Stories, the movement podcast. The celebration of the 100th anniversary of a major watch manufacturer deserves to be accompanied by an event that will leave a lasting imprint on time. When, in 1962, Zenith's management decided that three years later, to mark the centenary of the manufacturer, it would introduce the world's first chronograph with integrated automatic winding, it could never have imagined how many obstacles would arise in the course of this journey, due to the sheer complexity of the endeavor. Since 1959, Zenith had absorbed the Martel watch factory, a company located in Le Pont de Martel, which had developed a family of chronograph movements, as well as classic automatic movements of exceptional quality. The manufacturer thus had the kind of a research and development potential that opened up expanded opportunities for new creations. The idea of creating a self-winding chronograph was clearly on the mind of several major firms at this time. And this spurred the decision to get the work of developing the movement underway, looking ahead to the 1965 deadline. Work began immediately, and within a few weeks, the sketch of a movement whose architecture prefigured what this new generation chronograph would be started to take shape on the drawing boards. At the time, computers had not yet replaced the pencil tip and pantographs. Computer-aided design did not yet exist. Everything, therefore, had to be verified, calculated, measured, and anticipated with, as an essential instrument, the intelligence of those involved in the task and required to work together. An entire team was being created around this project, which involved several professions within the manufacture. Just like in a symphony orchestra where the musicians' instruments play in tuneful symbiosis, the know-how of the engineers, the keen eye of the prototype makers, the mastery of the experts who devise and perfect the movements, the knowledge of the constructors who assemble each component had to be united in perfect harmony. The work proved slow. In 1968, in a self-derisive move, the manufacturer explained in one of its advertisements that slowness was a hallmark of the work done by the watchmakers in Le Locle. By 1963, some of the final characteristics of the movement had been achieved. 
In 1964, everyone was ready, yet the prospect of the arrival of a formidable opponent from Asia was already on the horizon. Its name was Quartz. Zenith's management was hesitant. Its chronograph project still only featured a rate of 28,800 vibrations per hour, meaning eighth of a second precision, whereas watches capable of measuring one-tenth or even one-hundredth of a second and costing only a few francs were about to hit the market. It did not seem appropriate to launch a new chronograph without it bringing something extra in terms of time measurement accuracy. The thinking was that automatic winding was not enough to justify the investment required to produce such a movement. When the manufacturer Zenith Centenary arrived in 1965, its self-winding chronograph was not yet a reality. It was still in the planning stages, held back by the need to better understand what place it might occupy within a context marred by the emergence of entirely new products featuring non-mechanical-based technologies. In addition, there was no question of going out on a limb at a time when several companies were working together for the common cause. Various Swiss watchmaking industrialists, fearing the arrival on the market of quartz movements, collectively came up with the idea that tenth-of-a-second precision, achievable with mechanical movements, was liable to preserve the perceived value of a mechanical watch with respect to quartz. Several manufacturers therefore got together from 1965 to form a kind of think tank in order to find a solution to this technology. The main difficulty was not technical, but instead legal, since the issue was about jointly exploiting a shared patent, whereas commercial logic naturally placed the brands in competition within a situation veering towards a full-fledged financial crisis. The life-saving solution was named Clinergique 21, a wheel that would change the course of history. In 1966, the news bulletin of the Swiss Chronometry Society published a series containing information on work carried out within a company named FAR, or Fabrique d'Assortiment Réuni, and now part of Niverox. This work rendered the high frequency of 36,000 vibrations per hour operational thanks to an escapement system using a small wheel called the Klinergique 21 because of its 21 teeth. While the system worked well, the lubricants tended to spatter onto the regulating elements and thus destroyed the efforts made to achieve precision, sometimes even bringing movements to a halt. Several companies strove to adapt this new escapement to existing movements, of which the frequency was increased from 28,800 to 36,000 vibrations per hour. That which seemed easy on paper quickly became a conundrum, and while several manufacturers were initially drawn to the idea, they gave up after a few months, one after the other, on actually marketing models thus equipped. Despite everything, Zenith was interested in this escapement for its chronograph. Unlike other companies which over the course of two years gradually abandoned high frequency, the manufacturer integrated it to its chronograph movement, which was still in the development phase. When high-frequency-based three-hand watches from competing companies appeared in 1968, manufacturer Zenith was still working on lubricating the movement. No one had as yet entirely solved the problems linked to oil splashing. 
the team in charge of developing the new chronograph tried out several lubrication formulas, but tests with different oil densities were not enough to overcome the difficulty. 1968 was a pivotal year for watchmaking, as the expertise of the Zenith teams turned the spotlight on the magicians of precision timing. Speaking on behalf of the company, René Gigax, foreman of the manufacturer's team of outstanding watchmakers, tasked with preparing watches for international chronometry competitions, in particular Neuchâtel Observatory, announced that Zenith would no longer participate in future competitions. Among the reasons given were the evolution of the regulations that had to be adapted to quartz watches and the fact that the organizers had begun multiplying the number of prizes and were thereby putting an end to any real competition between manufacturers. The Zenith team of precision timers, composed of René Gigax, Jean-Pierre Vuy, Paul Favre and Jean-Pierre Sunier, was thus available for other missions in 1968. With their experience based on rigorous discipline, timekeepers are to watchmaking what Formula One engine tuners are to motor racing. The developers of the new chronograph therefore naturally turned to Gigax, Veuilly, Favre and Sunier for help with this project. René Gigax's team had extensive experience in matters of high frequency. He and his team had adapted various movements for the observatory's precision competitions in order to check their performance by modifying the escapements. The manufacturer's historical 135 caliber had been interpreted in high-frequency versions, as had the movement exclusively reserved for competitions bearing reference number 707. When the precision timers took a closer look at El Primero, they realized that the grade of the lubricants was not the issue and deduced that it was the actual mode of lubrication that must be changed. Precious timer Jean-Pierre Sunier explains how Monsieur Roulet, production manager in the Pont de Martel workshops, used to go back and forth with his chronograph caliber to the manufacturer in Le Locle so that the timers could help rid it of its natural youthful flaws. Due to the high frequency of the caliber and the resulting exceptional centrifugal forces, conventional lubrication of the parts was impossible. A special lubrication system therefore needed to be developed. The Zenith teams thus decided to use a dry molybdenum disulfide lubricant for the entire movement regulating assembly. The pallet lever was thus lubricated for life and should not be cleaned with a conventional bath, nor undergo lubrication of the same type as other types of movements during services in which a simple dry-type cleaning operation was enough to ensure proper maintenance. The barrel arbor attached to the self-lubricating spring rotated inside two beryllium bronze bushings for which lubrication was not required. Thus, although there were still just over 65 oiling or lubrication points described in the maintenance manual, the emphasis was on the duration and longevity of the lubrication between interventions related to periodic maintenance operations of the caliber. Point by point, just as they did for models presented at chronometry competitions, the precision timers left nothing to chance because they knew that the slightest detail could bring the mechanism to a halt. By November 1968, El Primero was fully completed and the first prototypes were running without stopping. 
This joint endeavor, which involved the concerted expertise of the entire manufacturer Zenith, was finally springing to life, and the heart of the movement was starting to beat before the satisfied eyes of those who had worked together in rising to the challenge launched seven years previously. Zenith waited until January 10, 1969 to announce the birth, a memorable day that began a new page in watchmaking history. Thank you very much to all of you for listening to this El Primero Movement story, a podcast which has been dedicated to movement excellence. My name is Julien Tornard, and I'm the CEO of Zenith. Like you, we are all sharing passion about watches, passion about watchmaking, and I think all these stories that you've been listening to are basically great examples of sharing this fantastic passion. We have been celebrating this year the 50th anniversary of one of the most, if not the most important movement in the watch industry called the El Primero, a legendary movement created in 1969. All over the year, we've been around the world to celebrate this movement with different friends and aficionados of our brand and sharing this passion. So I'm very happy that you could hear all these interesting stories about the brand, including Charles Vermeer's story, which is a man I want to celebrate, especially this year for this anniversary. I'm also looking forward to being with you in the next episode and to share more adventures about watchmaking and about El Primero. Thank you.